And Father, we do trust you for everything. We leave all to you. We entrust our lives to you. We entrust all that you've given to us. We pray that we are good stewards of what you've given us, including this moment now. You have given this to us. You have provided us a moment where we can worship and sing your word and study your word. And may we not squander this. May we learn from your truth. May your spirit use your truth to sanctify us. And Lord, we would be drawn near to you. We pray for all those who don't know you, and particularly this morning, those men who are not believers, who have their wives here today, who are believers, we pray that you would reach down to their hearts even now, perhaps they're not at church, they're at home doing whatever, we pray that you would speak to them, you would draw them through the message of the gospel and the ministry, the quiet, submissive ministry of their wives, you would draw them to yourself. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're always so blessed each week to gather and study God's Word together. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. And today really is the tail end of last week's message, a message that Peter wrote to ladies in the church who were married to unsaved men. Of course, this the principles that are given here, even the way Peter says it, the principles here are not simply principles that ought to be true in those marriages, but in all marriages. And so ladies can be encouraged, even though they're married to saved men who are here with them. And of course, the next passage, the final passage is written to men, and we'll get to that next week. But I wanted to wrap up this little section here, verses 1 to 6 of 1 Peter 3, that's written specific to wives. Of course, this comes in a flow of thought for Peter. Peter has been explaining that as Christians, we are not to be snobby or superior or self-willed or problematic in society or at our work or even at home. We're not supposed to be self-willed or superior. We're not supposed to be revolutionaries. We're supposed to be those who respect authority and honor everyone, even if they're lost people, even if they're wicked people, in places of authority, we are to submit and honor the emperor. Halfway through 2, it says, we're to submit and honor our masters. That's the end of chapter 2. And then we're to submit and honor those ladies who are married to lost men. They're to submit and honor those husbands. There's a couple basic principles, reasons that he gives throughout all of these passages. A couple reasons why we should submit and one of them is that we submit to authority because we understand God rules the universe. That's the fundamental reason that we would submit to any one of these authorities. Because we understand, of all people in this world, we should understand God rules. There's not one authority given. There's not one authority in place, whether it be a king or president or boss or master or husband. There's not one authority that's not ordained by God and given by God. Now, they may be lost. They may hate God. They may think all that they do is out from under the watchful eye and care and providence of God. But we understand differently. We as Christians understand that all authority has been given by God. And so we submit to, to the authorities as unto the Lord. We submit to them because this is what God has provided. The other idea, the other fundamental reason, and this is really a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter, is we want them to see 
our submission as a means of worshiping our God. In fact, if you think about it this way, the, the only moment that we will not to submit to them is when they are compelling us to disobey our God. Otherwise, we are submissive and kind and respectful and honorable. And they see us as, as excelling in our submission, excelling in our respect for them and their authority, except when they ask us to defy our own God. And so they understand this person excels. We ought to stand out as Christians, as those who are most submissive, as those who are most respectful as those who honor others the most. And this ought to be true even in the home. Well, let me read this. We're going to finish what we started last week. Last week, we jumped into this and really set the first point there about our motivations. Ladies, your ultimate motivation for submitting to your husband. And then we're going to get more to the practical side of things today because he gives a number of words for us that are very applicable here. Let me read this, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to 7, because that will take us to next week, Lord willing, as we talk about husbands as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along as I read aloud. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you as the, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are looking at a passage that, until about 60 years ago, was not a controversial passage. Even using words like submission and obey in today's world conjures up all kinds of frustrated angst in our society. Now, why is this? Well, the story goes something like this. Human history presents us with pretty much an uninterrupted, long, graphic, depraved story of men treating women poorly. And they would treat the women who were closest to them poorly, which would be their wives. Men have done that throughout all of history. Indeed, God had perfectly predicted that this is the case after the fall. Adam and Eve, even though they were reconciled to God, they still had death in their bodies. Their, their minds, even though their spirits were redeemed, their minds and their bodies were not redeemed. And so they still had sin. They still had difficulty. And so they produced sin. And they also produced the next generation of sinners. And so year after year, decade after decade, century and millennia after millennia, sinners have been raised and they are raised in a chauvinistic way, in a depraved way, in a misogynistic way, along with many other forms of depravity. So again, in large part, human history is marred with the oppression of the weaker vessel, oppression of women, the mistreatment of Wives. Well, a little over 200 years ago, thanks to the freedoms provided in the democracies in the Western world, 
like the United States, many ladies rose up and said, no more. We're not going to be treated this way. We're not going to be second-class citizens. Most people say that the start of the movement began when a lady by the name of Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a little book in England. She was an abused wife, and she wrote a little booklet. Uh, it was picked up, this, this idea that women should be treated with fairness and equality in society, this idea was picked up by a socialist, a Frenchman, by the name of Charles Fourier, and he wrote sort of an academic defense of this uh, idea. This movement became known as feminism. In fact, that's what he called it in French. He called it, he coined that term feminism. And feminism ostensibly has left to, left, uh, left, led to many freedoms for ladies, less abuse, arguably not just in the Western world, but in the world at large. Well, in spite of some of the positive impacts of feminism, every Christian woman needs to hear and understand this. Feminism at its base is anti-Christian. Fourier and Wollstonecraft did not open their Bibles and say, what does the Bible say about women and men and marriage and equality? What does the Scripture say? No, they, most of them wrote out of frustration, and they manufactured their own idea of what it should be. They created, those people created what's often known as first-wave feminism, which is really mostly about suffrage and labor movements and legal equality, that gave way naturally, because of the foundation that they built it on, gave way naturally to second-wave feminism, which is simply Marxism. It's all about class struggle. It's just like critical race theory or communism. It's all about the haves and the have-nots, the oppressors and those who are being oppressed. According to the feminist theory, every woman is automatically in the category of oppressed, and every man is automatically in the category of oppressor. And what they demand is that all men, just by dint of being a man, just by dint of having XY chromosomes, he be punished somehow, he be brought down somehow, and all women, no matter what they've done, regardless of their lives, they be rewarded in some way, regardless of their actual actions or life experience. As I mentioned this last week, it's exactly what we saw in cultural Marxism. It's so popular today in the universities and in politics. The goal is not equality. The goal is equity or equal outcome. Why? Because role equals value. You're not valuable until you can have and accomplish every role, whether you're qualified to accomplish that role or not, whether God tells you what roles should be or not. Whatever role you want, you ought to be able to have it, whether you are qualified to have it or not. And of course, this thinking has brought us all the way to the point of absurdity. Perverted men have realized the benefits of being woman, and so now they have decided they're going to call themselves women, and now they have places in women's locker rooms and bathrooms and on their sports teams taking the place of real biological women, ironically undoing what the initial feminism was all about. My point is this, the answer to the ancient sin of male chauvinism and broken marriages and oppressive relationships of men towards women is not to come up with our own thing, and it's certainly not feminism or Marxism. The answer is to go to Scripture. God designed us male and female. God designed us husband and wife, and God then gets to explain to us how He made us. 
and the right kind of order of a relationship, a husband and wife, a family relationship. The question we should ask is not how can we fix things according to our own imagination. The question is what has God said? One thing we find as we look at this passage today is one of the hardest assignments for ladies attempting to follow God's Word. One of the hardest assignments is when they're married, a Christian woman is married to an unsaved man. In fact, this is why Peter wrote a much longer section to women than he did men. There's, the temptations are greater, the situations are more complex. If you know a, a lady who's married to a lost man, just go and ask her. Can things be difficult sometimes? And sometimes you might find that rare case where the, the man is a gentleman, he's kind, he's warm, his only failure is to love Jesus. But most of the time when you talk to these ladies, you'll find out their lives are obliterated, their lives are lived in constant tension, their lives are sometimes very frustrating, trying to figure out how they can submit, how they can love their husband, a man who, who literally hates the God that they serve. And so Peter took some time to write to these ladies in this very difficult situation and give them, based upon the base structure that God has given of man and woman in marriage, he gives this base structure so that these ladies can survive and thrive and be sanctified and perhaps even be such a testimony that their husband would be drawn to the gospel. Well, the way this passage is set up, I mentioned this last time, the way this passage is set up is you have a couple of divine motivations. These motivations, I see them at the very beginning and at the very end, almost like parentheses. These, these are the, the bookends to some very practical words. And so last week we looked at number one, the divine motivation, the, the godly motivation for these women. If you're married, why should you submit? If you're married, ladies, to a lost man, or even to any man, because he includes all women, uh, if you're married, why should you submit? And there's two basic motivations. The first motivation we talked about last time is from verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, again, this includes all ladies, but some who don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, they submit because they want to testify to the truth of the gospel. They want to testify to the fact that they worship God. This goes back to the main reason, the main thrust of all of these sections. All this submission is so that you testify you believe in a God who sets up and rules the universe. And any authority that's given, that authority is given by God, even if it's a wicked, sinful, unsaved authority. So wives, through this, though their husband has heard the word from them and they reject the word, they can then, without a word, not by nagging them, not by haranguing them, not by taping Bible verses everywhere this lost man looks, they can win him over by being a submissive and gentle wife. The second motivation is at the end of this verse, verse 5, for this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. The other motivation is that you would join a host of faithful, godly, holy women. Ladies, don't you want to be a part of that? Group. Don't you want to be a part of ladies who are attempting to, to live out what biblical submission looks like? 
You want to live out what the Scripture says about how you ought to be a wife. So those are the two motivations, and we talked about those at length last week. In between those two ideas, we have a series of verses that gives us uh, a pretty good guide, some very practical ways to follow and submit to your husbands. What, how can we carry this out? And there's some pretty clear things here. Now, uh, mind you, and I said this last week, there's not a lot of specificity here. He's not going to get down to the nitty-gritty of specific situations. He's just going to plant these attitudes and these, these sort of basic actions in the hearts of the ladies so that they would then apply them as uh, they see fit and the Holy Spirit brings to their mind. So what are some practical methods? Number one, be willing to follow. You may want to write that down. Be willing to follow. We draw this from that main verb, submit. It's the same word that's used in these, others, these other ideas. Submitting to masters, submitting to the authorities, civil authorities. Be willing to follow. And of course, we see this with Sarah here, exemplified in Sarah's obedience. Now, let me say this. Christian men, we're going to get to this next week. Christian men, you need to understand your leadership is the leadership of a peer, right? This is a fundamental change and a challenge that Christianity had toward the ruling misogynistic society of the day. The leadership was still intact, but now you're not leading someone who's less than you. You're leading someone who is a peer, who's equal to you, who stands before God in the same way. Your leadership, again, it's not that you're valued more than her or you're more important than her. You're the same as her before God, but you're, you have a role that you have to carry out. And so you're leading someone who's a peer. I think of in the military, you might have a couple guys who go through the academy together and they get rank at the same time. Year after year, they get rank. And then one year, one of them, is his, his lineal is just below the mark and one of them is above and one of them makes, you know, admiral and the, the other one is still a captain. Well, they're, they're peers. Their learning is the same. Their timing is the same. It's just that one in this situation, to make things orderly so that they can fight war properly, one has to say sir to the other. So men were leading our peers. Uh, husbands who are not saved don't understand that. They're not going to lead you in that way, ladies. They're not going to comprehend this. Now, they may have some godless version of that, maybe drawn from feminism or what the world tells them or what TV tells them. They're not going to understand their equality with their wife before God. But what Peter's saying is, even if your husband doesn't understand our equality and that we are peers before God, even if your husband doesn't understand that, you're to do the same thing. You're still supposed to submit to him. He is your leader. You're supposed to follow him. It has nothing to do with your value. It doesn't mean you can't speak into his life. It doesn't mean you can't give your advice. It doesn't mean you can't help change his mind about something or some decision. It doesn't mean you can't speak into his life and bring wisdom and truth to him. But it does mean that you generally follow him. And ladies, I would just say, again, not to give any kind of specifics here, the question is, do you harbor that attitude of fellowship in your heart? Do you, do you think about that often? Do you pray for this? Do you say, I want to follow my husband. Sometimes these husbands won't lead. They have no desire to lead. They like to sit around. They're not going to lead the family. They're not, certainly not going to lead them to do spiritual things. 
So then you have to be creative. How can I demonstrate to my husband, who doesn't want to lead, how can I demonstrate to him that I want to follow him, that I want to come in under him, that even though we are equal and we are peers, that I want to follow him, that he is the leader of this family? How can I find ways to demonstrate that and express this? And I would just say this, don't, don't fall for what uh, a lot of ladies do, and that is to do pretend submission, pretend fellowship, right? You see some ladies, they work very hard at looking like they're followers, but really they've just learned how to manipulate and get what they want, right? They're really good at talking and looking and maybe even making gestures and facial expressions that seem very submissive, but they're not really working on being submissive. They're working on looking submissive. Don't be a hypocrite. What you really want to foster in your heart is a desire to follow your husband. Be willing to follow your husband. Secondly, another idea here, again, we draw this from Sarah's example here, be respectful. Sarah calls him Lord. Now, notice this is not a legalistic command. Peter doesn't stop and say, now, what I want all women to do is call their husbands Lord. I kind of wish they would say that, but he didn't say that. I've never been called Lord. There's only one Lord. And he does not command this. This is just an example of some a lady who demonstrated respect for her husband. This is a demonstration of respect. You know, some people make a lot about this. I think there's something to be said about it. I don't know that it's the definitive in terms of husband-wife relationships, but it does say in, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. Uh, again, I think there's something there. I don't know that we can make a whole you know, sermon series out of those two words, but I think there is something to say about men being respected. I think there's something to say that men are loved in the way in, that, in which they are respected. Peter's point is that you ought to show respect. You ought to honor your husband. You ought to help your children honor them. You ought to demonstrate for the glory of God a, a submission, but also that we respect this authority. There ought to be a sense that you defend one another. Now, one of the things that people accuse me of once in a while is overstating how great my wife is. In your mind, Becky can do no wrong. No, in my mind, I see wrongs and things that Becky does, and Becky sees wrongs that I do, but we're not going to tell any of you people about it. <laughs> because we love each other, and we respect each other, and we, we want you to see that we, we defend one another. Ladies, you do that to your husbands. Respect them. Defend them. Don't go around and complain and whine and moan at all the things he does that bothers you. Engender a heart of respect. You know, I've noticed a phenomenon that uh, it's in the church. It's everywhere, but it's in the church. I've seen this many, many, many times. It begins with a husband, a husband who doesn't respect his authorities. Maybe it's his authorities at work. Maybe it's civil authorities. It's authorities in some manner or form, and he kind of, kind of moans about it and gripes about it, and from time to time the whole family gets to hear how much he disrespects those in authority over him. And what I found is a lot of times in that man's life he has a wife who does the same thing about him. Usually that's what happens, only amplified. And she begins to disrespect him, and oh, she might find a way to trick him into thinking that 
she respects him, but in her heart, in her attitude, and in some of her actions, maybe she's extremely manipulative. What we find is that she actually disrespects him even more. And what I've seen, the end of this trail of sin is that children who disrespect authority even more. And usually the way I discover this, this chain of sin is some parents come to me and they, they can't understand why their kids are so rebellious. And I began to roll up my sleeves and begin to do some counseling, get in their lives, and what I found out is these kids don't respect their parents because the mom does not respect the husband and the husband doesn't respect authorities in his life. Now, ladies, what do you do if you're married to a man who's not interested in following what the Scripture says about respect and honor? What do you do? You need to be the one who sets the standard of respect for authority in your family. That's what Peter is saying here. You be the one who sets the standard. I'm going to respect him as an authority in the family. Again, it's not taking away at all the fact that you are peers, that you're equal before God, but you set the standard of respect for authority. You see that all authority is given by God, and you respect authority. Third, be pure. Verse 2, they see you're respectful, and that again ties us back to Sarah. Respectful and pure conduct. This is blamelessness. This is innocence. Let me explain to you something that should happen in every person's life as they get older. There ought to be a, a holiness and a, an innocence about them in terms of their relationship with the opposite sex. Singles, as you get older, get through college, and as you grow older, there ought to be a, a, a deep profound desire to demonstrate your innocence and blamelessness. But what I've seen is sometimes people carry some very child, childish behavior into their marriage. And sometimes it's something like this. You find a, a marriage that's sort of struggled, and I begin to talk with them, and I find out that the wife has some fellow that she calls her best friend. Have you seen this? It causes all kinds of questions. And she's going off spending time with some other man. And this makes people wonder, what's going on here? Is this innocence? Is this pure? Can anybody blame her? Yeah, they could say, this is wrong. This is not right. And usually what those things, the more time they spend with these other people, what those things ends up is, is an out-and-out -out sin. No, your fulfillment, ladies, your fulfillment in terms of male friendship is your husband. That's who you love. That's who you spend time with. That's who your best friend should be. That's the person that you should get along with the most and seek to get along with the most. There shouldn't be any notion, there shouldn't be any accusation that someone could say, she's sort of flirty. When she laughs, she puts her hands on men. When she talks to men, she looks deep into their eyes. Now, there ought to be a sense in which you have such purity and holiness that no one could make any kind of accusation that this woman is not pure. And really, the ultimate idea is that you are instilling in your husband a confidence and a trust that you are faithful to him, that you love him and only him, that your eyes are not wondering, that you're not wishing that you had one of the men at church or had some other guy that you think may be better. You demonstrate for him that you're faithful to him. I suppose this would move in, even into the areas of the other parts of your life, where you are during the day, what you're doing on the internet, 
what kind of friends you have out in the world, what do you do with your time. There should be no secrets from your husband in this regard. You know, we have all this technology now. You can track your spouse and kids everywhere, and you can look at each other's emails. And, and let me just tell you, husbands and wives, it ought to be an open book. You shouldn't have any offense that your wife may try to figure out where you are and track your location. Hey, that shouldn't be any offense. Ladies, the same thing, that your husband might know where you are. It's just a given. They, they should know where you are. You ought to like the fact that they know where you are. My wife and I, we share our emails. We, we both have each other's email. We get them on our computers. We see all the emails and the text, and we grab each other's phone and go through it. There's no secrets. Why? Because we want to be blame and pure, pure, blameless and pure to one another. We don't want there to be any, kind, any reason for accusation. We want that purity to be, to be obvious, and we want to, it to instill trust in one another. So ladies, instill that trust. Be pure. So be willing to follow, be respectful, be pure. Number four, be spiritual. What I mean by that is a lady who's not focused on the external. Verse three, do not let your adorning be external. Braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit, gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do not be a lady whose obsession is how she looks. Is this a temptation? We, we live in a crazy world where you can do all kinds, thanks to modern science, you do all kinds of alterations to make yourselves appealing, more and more appealing, and people can get obsessive. Men can too. People get obsessed with their outward appearance. A godly woman is to be obsessed with her spiritual walk. Her focus, her desire should be on producing the fruit of the Spirit. Peter says here, the hidden person of the heart. He wants the ladies to pursue an imperishable beauty, a beauty that will be with her in eternity, not just a beauty that gets uglier and uglier as they get older. Now, you've seen this, how ladies, sometimes men, put all this emphasis in their earlier years on how they look, and they get all these surgeries, and they just look like a fool later on. We mock those people. They look ridiculous. Don't be like that. Focus on an imperishable beauty that lasts for eternity. Be obsessed with pursuing these things. Now, I do have to address something before we move on. Some ladies have read this verse, and they've walked away with a wrong interpretation, a very legalistic interpretation. They look at this passage, and they say, oh, look, the Bible says we're not supposed to ever braid our hair. The Bible says we're not supposed to wear any jewelry. We're not supposed to wear nice clothes. And they take this sort of as a legalistic list of rules, and then they pat themselves on the back for looking dirty and smelling funny and <laughs> looking at all the ladies around them who put on makeup and put deodorant on. <laughs> they take this as sort of legalistic. Well, if you want to be legalistic about this, the technical, the literal words here is he says, don't adorn with yourself with clothing. So if you want to take it legalistically, <laughs> don't wear anything. Clearly, Peter is not saying that. He's saying don't focus on these things. 
don't make this your obsession. Make it obvious to your husband and those around you that your obsession is not how you look. It doesn't mean don't take a shower. It doesn't mean wear old, nasty clothes. It doesn't mean look down on everybody who doesn't uh, do it like you do it. What it means is make it clear that your obsession is to be sweet and kind and godly and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Peter says, be a woman whose goal is, spiritual goal, is to walk with God and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. One of the things that your husband and children ought to know about you is that you spend time in the Word. They ought to know about you is that you, when times are tough and there's an opportunity for you to be angry, you withhold anger and you show kindness. They want to see when you're suffering, maybe through sickness or hardship, they, they see a woman who is kind no matter how she feels. She focuses on being like Christ. Be someone who's obsessed with your spiritual life. This is what Peter's point is. The fifth and final application here, be fearless. At the very end, Peter says something that's a little bit odd sounding to us. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think the most obvious way is the way we should interpret this. And it's talking about abusive husbands. Now, let me make clear, he doesn't give them the instruction that you ought to stay with those men and consistently be beat by them. He didn't say that. He says, don't be afraid. In fact, I think one of the things that we could even see in a lot of abusive relationships where a husband is abusing a wife, she's afraid so much she won't report it to the police. She's afraid so much that she won't separate herself out of that abusive situation for a time. And what he's saying is, don't be afraid. Do the right thing. For ladies in abusive relationships, contact the authorities. Let the authorities know. Show them the injuries. Demonstrate that you're not afraid that he could beat you again. You know the worst thing your husband could do? Let you immediately meet Jesus. This is true for all of these situations, right? We shouldn't be fearful of civil authorities. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Don't be fearful. The worst they can do to you is kill you, which means instant, immediate meeting your Savior. Don't be afraid of your boss. Don't live and cower in fear. Be fearless. Fear God. Love God. Have faith in Him that this is the setup. It doesn't mean, again, he didn't give instruction about staying with Him and just taking your beatings. He didn't say anything like that. That's not the language here at all. There's not even a hint of this. What he's saying is, have confidence in God. Trust in the Lord. You can do the right thing. You can operate in the right way. You can live in the right way. You can be fearless even when you're married to an abusive husband. Of course, in that day, it probably was even more prevalent. Sometimes you go to certain societies, even on planet Earth right now, and you, you see this. It, it may be common for husbands to beat their wives, to do wrong things to their wives, and perhaps in those societies, there's, there's ladies who are becoming Christians, and they're, they're seeing that they're equal with their husband. They stand on a, really on the moral high ground. And again, the instruction is not to stay with him. It's to do the right thing. It's to not fear this. 
to not be afraid, not feel like that somehow that man can dominate or determine your eternity, that you can live in faith of God. You can do the right thing in a fearless way. And I think this kind of wraps up the whole in, uh, encouragement here in a nice little bow. We don't respect and submit to authorities, whether it be a husband or a master or a civil authority, because we're ultimately afraid of them. We do it because we're ultimately submissive to God. And we pray that somehow, this is a theme again through Peter, the book of 1 Peter, that somehow this would compel them to ask that question about the hope that lies within you. Through our understanding of authority and our respect and submission and acting in this way that we might win some to Christ. Well, let's pray that we would live thusly. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Again, we do pray for those ladies among us and those whom we know who are married to lost men. How can they show and demonstrate that they, we all stand equal before God, but at the same time that they respect authority and they honor their husbands? Lord, give them the grace. There's not specific instructions here. There's broad implications, and I think it's because every woman's situation is different. And I pray that you would impress upon them how they can apply these truths and live out this submission, because ultimately it's a submission to you. And we do, again, for the second time this morning, pray for those lost men, those men who are indulging themselves right now, doing whatever they want, and we just pray that you would bring them to the gospel. I pray that they would have heard the gospel, and I pray that they would see the gospel confirmed in the attitude and spirit of their wives. For all those who don't know Christ, I pray today that you would draw them to the message of Christ crucified, that Christ paid the penalty of their sin, and Christ provided righteousness for them and provides power over sin and death. Grant them the faith they need to trust in Him and follow after Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. All right, please stand with me. Don't forget that after the uh, second hour, the Bible study hour, we'll have a little time of uh, poo-poos and fellowship, a little presentation, and uh, we'll celebrate. We'll give you time to come and celebrate Pastor Steve and Danelle and invite everyone to be a part of that. I do think the Kapuna are going to meet Steve down the front here in just a few moments and take a, pic a group picture together. So if you're part of the Kapunas, uh, make sure and come down at the front for that picture here in a few moments. All right. Time for a benediction. May the Lord send you help from a sanctuary and grant you support from on high. May grace and peace be to you from the God who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Amen.